You are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Episode 2 of The Big Event. Thanks for coming back. My guest today is Greg Proops, improv master on Whose Line Is It Anyway, the Smartest Man in the World podcast, and a San Carlos native who got his start in the San Francisco comedy scene in the 1980s. Normally I come into an interview like this with prepared questions and some kind of structured path, but Proops was never a structured path kind of comic. I wrote down three or four things I wanted to talk about on a post-it and just sort of let him go, which turned out to be a very good tactic. Here is Proops talking about his 1977 visit to the Cow Palace to see the band Kiss. Um, they screamed everything, as you recall. Yeah. They, 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 uh, this one called Stroud! Right? Like they, didn't, <laughs> they didn't actually speak to the crowd at any point. They simply screamed, how many people here like rock and roll? Right, And then how many people like the taste of alcohol? Questions like that. Yeah. I believe the question went like this. How many people here like the taste of alcohol? And everybody cheer. And they go, this one's called cold gin. And it's like, what child likes to drink gin? I mean, just, I'm just asking out of curiosity. I should note that that's one of the few PG things that Greg said in the hour-long interview. Most of these podcasts are going to be great for listening while you're shuttling your kid back and forth to soccer practice. This isn't one of them. Um, there's some profanity and some very specific talk of 1970s drug use. That said, there's a very innocent moment at the end. I found Proop's entry at age six and a half in 1966 in the San Francisco Chronicle Junior Art Championships, which ran on our comics page. Make sure you listen for that. I'm Peter Hartlob, and this is The Big Event. Ready to go? Yeah. So, Chronicle employee since since you were a paperboy. That's right. Uh, um, 1975, uh, 74, I was a Chronicle paperboy in San Carlos, California, and uh, I had two routes, and I delivered the papers to San Carlos High, which was on my route, which was around the corner from me. I was attending this school at the time, and so it was imperative that I didn't get there uh, too late because I didn't want any of the girls that went to school to see me walk up with my paperboy bags on. And uh, the chronic, uh, the San, San Carlos High just ordered like 10 or 12 every day, and you just left them in a stack in front of the school. Yeah. And the librarian went and got them. Uh, and I walked my route because San Carlos was all hills. So it was just up a hill and then uh, down a hill and then back up a hill and down a hill. So I never rode a bike on mine because it was all apartment buildings. So I had to go to different people's apartments in their apartment building. At four, you know, I would get up at like 5, 4.35. And every once in a while, I'd sleep late, and uh, my manager, the DM, uh, Sal, uh, would bang on the door, and my dad would wake up and answer the door and go, God damn it, get up and deliver your fucking papers. (laughs) You remember the name of the guy. I think his name was Sal. Um, Sometimes he'd let you ride in the Chronicle truck, which was great fun because it was open air and pretty lawless, you know? And he smoked, and uh, we'd ride up. You know, if you were lucky, he'd give you a ride back. That way you didn't have to walk back. Uh, I can't remember the other street I was on, but it, I went up my street, Torino, and then to this high school, which was on Melody, and then down the next street over. And um, then you had to collect in those days, too. So they gave you a little receipt book, like it was 1933, and you went door to door to door, and I think it was $3.25 a month or something. You'd knock on people's doors, and if they weren't home, you had to come back. So collection was like, sometimes it took two or three nights. you go out. Around dinner time was the best time to catch people. And uh, then that's when they'd uh, tip you for the month. And in those days, it was not uncustomary to give a 50-cent tip. <laughs> if someone gave you a dollar or two dollars, that was a big deal. 
That's life skills, though, you're learning. Absolutely. I didn't mind being a paper boy. Uh, the guy in another guy in my apartment building who was sort of the guy who uh, hung around high school too long, you know, yeah, yeah. he was probably 18 or 19 and he was still a paper boy as his job. His name was Jeff. I remember that. And he had a giant route and uh, he lived in my apartment building. So we would fold papers together in the morning. You'd sit on the stoop and you hit them on your knee and then you folded them right over, left over. Yeah, and then nice. you put the rubber band on them. So you bought from the Chronicle a bag of rubber bands every month. The Chronicle did not give you rubber bands to put around the papers. You yeah. bought them. And they came in a big plastic bag. And then they gave you a big Chronicle canvas bag that you wore over your shoulders, right? So the papers went in the front and the back. So you folded them all up and then you put them in the bag. And uh, so he would fold a 1,000 papers. And he had a Toyota and he'd go drive his route. And then I'd walk mine. Were you, was that your first job? Compound question, number one. And number two, was that the point where you realized um, – that uh, you were going to be something other than a salesman. and <laughs> uh, Yes, it was my first job. I mean, other than babysitting or whatever, odd jobs, because I think I was 14, and they don't really let you have a job before that. After that, I was a janitor for a while when I was 15. Um, and yes, it made me realize that uh, individual entrepreneurship uh, was going to be the way to go, and that working for a giant company was not going to be the way to go. I listened to a Panasonic tuba loop, which was a radio, if you look it up on uh, – on the computer, it, it was round like this, and you unfolded it that way, and there mm -hmm. was a dial like that. And I put the earphone, no headphones in those days, yeah. an earphone in one ear, and I would listen to KSFO because it was um, – who was it? Russ Syracuse and then Jim Lang. Russ the Mu Moose Russ Syracuse. Russ the Moose Syracuse. Yeah, right on. And he did a, he did a late, late night show, and uh, he signed off with – what was it? Uh, put on the coffee bubbles. I'm coming home. Yeah. <laughs> And then on Sunday morning, Scott Beach, who played Foggy Mountain Breakdown and Amazing Grace on his show every week. Yeah. <laughs> and the songs that were popular then were like Dan Hicks, uh, which no one would play now on the, on the oh, radio. No, no. Uh, and um, Stevie Wonder, Don't You Worry About a Thing. That'll give you an idea what year it was. And I'd listen to that at five in the morning. So Greg Proops, we're in the Chronicle archive here. Um, you're here. It's June. Uh, I'm going to cop to it because this is probably coming out in July. Okay. Hi, how are uh, you Mari Carr, and my editor Mari Carr is here taking a Hi, photo. Hi, I'm Greg. How are you? Nice to meet nice you. To meet you. We're very digital here, so she's going to take a photo so we can share okay. it on Instagram. Try not to make me look too fat. Uh, <laughs> Put it on thin. So you're here. Uh, you're here in June. You're coming back in July. I feel That's like right. you have like a residency here. I we know you're going to come in December to the punchline. Yeah. Punchline like. Capistrano swallow in July and December. Do you do you plan it out that way? Uh, yeah, uh, I've been lucky enough that the punchline has kept me employed. And uh, more pictures, Mary Carr. Um, <laughs> I was at Cobb's for years, and uh, then I moved over to the punchline some time ago. And uh, they asked me to move back to Cobb's because I was doing quite well at the punchline, and I said no. The punchline holds about a hundred people, hundred and something, yeah, hundred eighty maybe. And uh, it's real intimate in the back walls, maybe 20 yards from the stage, or even closer than that. So I really like it. Uh, you can do close-up magic there. Cobbs is a nice room. I never minded playing there. I was with Tom Sawyer last night, who used to own Cobbs. Or two mm -hmm. nights ago, I did the uh, Town Square uh, thing in Mill Valley. Tom lives there now. Uh, and he gave me all kinds of work and headlined me in San Francisco for years and years and years. And it's just so big at Cobbs. And there's that upstairs section. All the laughs go straight up. So it's hard to hear how well you're doing, surprisingly. Yeah. Whereas at the punchline, you know what's going on because it's boom. Yeah. The back wall's right there. So, yes, I'm there in July. I'm there in 
New Year's every year, and I think it's mine as long as I want it. I'm hoping, he said, not yeah. hoping to jinx it. Uh, Bobby used to be there, Bobby Slayton, and then uh, he, they didn't want him anymore, whatever happened, so they asked me to do it, and that's when I took it over. Yeah. Do you, do you remember your first time there? At the punchline? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Open mic in the early 80s. I was in a team called Proops and Brakeman with a, my old partner, Force Brakeman. And um, we would take – I lived on um, Franklin and um, Sack then yeah. in an apartment building. And we would take the bus down the one. And then sometimes on Sunday night, the cable car was still running after the show. We'd take the cable car back. And he lived on Deviz and uh, Haight. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we had any money, we would take a taxi. <laughs> Because taking a bus to a gig is a real, like, you know, wake-up call. Yeah. The cold, frosty bite of poverty, which we were living in then. And uh, What muni line is that? It was the one. The one. The one goes right yeah, one. about a block away, Got two it. blocks from uh, Bush. What is it on? Battery in Montgomery. Yeah, yeah. And, um, yeah. And then, uh, you know, we would take the, uh, the, the 72 or the... Uh, or, or whatever to Haight Street to do the other cafe, which was on Carlin Cole. Mm-hmm. And then we'd walk up to Carlin Cole. And the 37 Corbett was the only bus that stopped in front of the other cafe every night. And during the show, it would stop there in the window. And Paula Poundstone would do her act, and she'd go, have you ever noticed that no one's ever on the 37 Corbett? And within her act, there would stop the 37 Corbett, and everyone would look out the window, and there'd be one person on it. And then we'd get a huge laugh. Nice. Yeah. I got to – I got to – I got to um... – I gotta get her in here. We have a, we have a Greg Proops file. Yeah. We're in the archives. I was gonna by say the way. hers is close to mine. P O and P-O. yeah, yeah. Yes, and we're in the archives. It's fantastic down here. It's like Citizen Kane. Yeah, tell Declaration me, of Principles. You made requests, and I I'm gonna have to do this for everyone who comes in. Um, have them request what they want to see. I thought it was very impressive that you didn't request yourself. Oh, you, you requested it never occurred to me. The tubes. This is super yeah. San Francisco. The tubes. Willie Mays. And any 49ers parade or fan photos. So uh, I I was hoping you could go back and just tell me a little bit about what – at what point did you feel connected to this city? Oh, well, I'm from San Carlos, and before that I lived in Palo Alto, and before that Mountain View. And my we moved up here uh, from uh, Southern California in like, I don't know, 66, 67, somewhere in there. I was in first grade, second grade in Palo Alto, and then – we moved to San Carlos, and I did third through the rest here. Yeah. Um, and I always felt connected to San Francisco, and I couldn't wait to move up. And then, of course, once we started being mobile in the 70s, when I got a car and my friends got cars, then we would drive up to San Francisco all the time. Then our friends started moving up to San Francisco, our gay friends first uh-huh. uh, as teenagers, and then they got cribs in, like, Polk Street. Then we come up and visit them and take drugs and, you know, go to concerts and all that. So. Yeah. Um, it was a forever, like, we're going to drive up to the city and do something. We're going to go to Winterland and see Richie Blackmore. Or nice. we're going to go up to Candlestick and see the Giants, right? So there was no even, thought even, in San Carlos of, like, any, doing anything in San Carlos. Even more specifics. The car, I'd like to know the kinds okay. of drugs and the year, okay. if possible, just so we can paint the picture. Yes, please. Um, in uh, uh, 77, I want to say... I would come up with uh, – oh, oh, all right. 78, I was working at um, Chicken Delight Pizza Man in Burlingame, California. And um, the uh, owner of the place was also a meth dealer and uh, sold pot. And so I did my first night there, and I did a lot of deliveries. No GPS in those days. A giant map on the wall like a war room. Yeah. Like a giant map of Burlingame and San Mateo <laughs> with pins in it, which I thought was hilarious. Like we're doing strategic pizza strikes. And uh, I did the first night, and um, he was a ex-con, ex-marine. Uh, with uh, tattoos of various configurations, gold chain, terrible skin because he, he took a lot of amphetamine. And uh, <laughs> he said, hey, Proops, 
uh, and he thought I was a fruit basket. I mean, I had long hair parted down the middle, sunglasses and a Mickey Mouse T-shirt, you know, belt buckle with a mushroom on it, you know. Yeah. And he goes, um, proves you smoke weed? And I'm like, yeah. And he goes, because I sell weed. So I spent all the money I made, I think, the first night on a bag of weed. And then um, – so to be specific, my friend uh, – me and my cousin Donnie would drive up in his Le Mans. He had like a 64 crop Le Mans. Yeah. We went to see Blondie at Winterland and uh, took a – ton of uh, meth and uh, snorted meth, smoked pot, and drank uh, Michelobes. Wow. And then we'd you know, drink them in the car, and yeah. then you'd go into Winterland uh, and then do some more uh, speed in the bathroom or whatever. And I remember bursting. I had to go to the bathroom. We were right down front. For, uh, some cra- Bill Graham always put on the stupidest. It would be like a, a new wave band, a punk band, and then like Aria Speedwagon. Yeah. You're like, there was no rhyme or reason. And Santana was on everything because he managed them. And... Uh, so it was REO Speedwagon headlining and Blondie in the middle. And um, I remember going to, with my cousin Donnie and saying, uh, I, I have to go to the bathroom. And uh, he goes, I'm not moving. <laughs> I'm not moving. I've come to see Deborah Harry. I am standing in front to see Deborah Harry. So I went. I came back. And, of course, I couldn't get anywhere near him. I, I saw him from where I was yeah. uh, you know, by then. And winter then was a dire, dire uh, dump. Uh, things fell from the ceiling during the show quite often. Um, you know, you'd just be standing there and bonk, something would hit you in the head, and, you know, plaster, you yeah. know, and uh, 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 the floor was hardwood. It was like a basket, you know, like a gym. Uh, uh, and I remember having a piece of it for a long time. You know, you could just pull it out, basically. And then someone inevitably got sick, and then there'd be a, a circle would form where that person got sick. No one ever cleaned it up or anything like that. Um, I saw Richie Blackmore there with my friend Jane Aceto. Um I flipped off um, uh, some gangsters who were – I was standing in the middle of the street. We had been drinking tequila. Smoking pot. We were in his Toyota Corolla, and uh, we drove – or his Nissan. I think my – no, there was no Nissan's then. It was a, it was a Toyota. Uh, um, we were, there's nowhere to park at yeah. Wayland. It was on Fillmore and Steiner. So you parked in the ghetto, and, and there were hoodlums. So I was drunk standing in the street while he went, get out of the car. I can't park. There's no space. So I got out of the car, standing in the street. Here comes a black Cadillac with trim on the outside, like red leather trim on the outside. And I flipped them off for, just because I was a punk 12, you know, 18-year-old. And they stopped, and they rolled back, and the windows came down, and it was two 350-pound Samoan dudes with eyes like fucking red grenades, right? Just, <laughs> and as I say, you could see their weapons hanging from the filials, right? They were like pirates, you know, they had <laughs> the knuckle dusters and, you know, and, and the little steering wheel that was this big that was made out of uh, links, like of a chain, yeah, if you remember yeah. those, because they were gangsters. Them. I remember them well. And the guy goes, is there a problem? And I'm like, no, there's no problem. And he's like, because if there's a problem, we'll deal with it. And I'm like, there's absolutely no problem. Everything is as beautiful as it can be. And they go, because if there's a problem, you know, we want to know about it. And I'm like, no, there's no problem at all. And they finally, the windows went up and they rolled off, right? And I thought, oh, my God, they're going to fucking shoot me, right? You know, because I – yeah. For no reason. And they uh-uh, they weren't having it, right? They wanted to come back and scare me, right? So now my friend Jay gets out of the car. He's missed this whole thing. I'm sitting on the sidewalk now, completely sober, cr- almost crying. <laughs> 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 so this is what happens when you're a suburban brat and you come to San Francisco high on drugs. I get the feeling that um, the 70s and early 80s was just a series of near-death experiences. It really was. The things we did were so stupid and ill-advised. We would take acid and drive to Half Moon Bay, uh, driving over 92 uh, in the middle of the night. Um, 
stopping. And there used to be a spring on the side of the road that was simply a, a pipe that water came out of. And yeah. people would fill up buckets. Uh, uh, in those days, those giant plastic jugs because no one carried water bottles in those days. Uh, we would take acid and go to the airport and park it. There's an adjacent lot and there's one at Coyote Point as well where you're right next to like the movie Bullet where the planes take off. So when you're tripping on acid, each plane would come around and, you know, yeah, and we yeah. just watched them take off for like hours and hours and smoke pot in the car. This is the kind of stupid things we did. Do you look back and, and think <laughs> like what – I don't know how to put this except to say it just outright – you're a successful, stable person. <laughs> Your bills are getting paid. Ish, yeah. Could you could you tell me? I mean, how that happened? Um, going from these stories, and I've heard other stories on your podcast. <laughs> what what was what was the point where you you strung together some gigs and and this became a career? Well, I was lucky. I mean, I, I started doing stand up here uh, in like '82. And the Holy City Zoo was going. I couldn't get on at the punchline then. The yeah. other cafe was going. And then uh, my partner and I broke up in Forest moved to L.A. And I joined a group called Fault Line. And I was in an improv group for a couple of years. And we played at 9th and um, uh, uh, Howard at a place called Lips. Yeah. Which was only called Lips because the sign said Phillips. And they had, like, eradicated the P and the H. So then it was <laughs> Lips Lounge. The National Theater of the Deranged played there as well. Jim Crenna, who just passed away several weeks ago, was the leader of that group. And uh, so I did that for a couple of years. Then I went back to stand-up, and it was then, uh, in the late 80s, I started doing stand-up. Um, I got a gig as a house MC at Cobb's Comedy Club when they were down in the um, – they had moved to the um, Wharf where they yeah. were for years before they sure. moved over to Wolfgang's. By the early 90s, I was headlining at all the clubs. They'd opened an improv downtown uh, that was uh, on Geary uh, right near uh, uh, the deli down there in the theater district near ACT. And um, – Next to a jack-in-the-box where the hookers would smoke crack in the bathroom and everything. <laughs> and um, when I started headlining in San Francisco, that's when I think the change – like I started to actually make some money. I could headline all the clubs here. Um, I got on Who's Line in 1989, and I started to go back and forth to England a little more. And so by 1993, I was probably one of the – Bigger headliners in San Francisco, but it took me, as I say, from 1982 to 1993 to make that happen. Yeah. So by then, I kind of knew that I was going to have a life. Uh, I'd married, got married finally to my wife, and uh, uh, um, we had a little crib out at 23rd and Lake that we were running. And then we moved to England, and that was sort of after that, it was sort of good. How'd you? Feel? <laughs> I mean, it was good when I lived here, but yeah. I remember doing Comedy Day in like '92. And thinking, wow, I've really made it. I've got a job. People come to see me. Uh, I have a name in the town that I wanted to have a name in. I, nothing was more important to me than headlining here, you know? Yeah. And, and, and uh, yet you left. Well, I had an opportunity to go to London yeah. uh, because I was on TV there. I was having a drink at the Keysar Club uh, with Deb and Mike uh, and Will Durst. And uh, uh, Debbie is Will's wife and Michael Bozzi is her partner. And Tom Rhodes, the comedian, who lives in L.A. now but lived all over the world. And um, Tom turned to me and said, hey, man, uh, don't you, aren't you on a TV show in England? And I go, I am. And he goes, well, manhandle that bad boy. <laughs> and it, I was in a drunken phrase, uh, frenzy at that point, and yeah. I went, he's right. So I bought a Time Out magazine at an international newsstand near my house and phoned people cold in that magazine, comedy club people, yeah. and said, my name's Greg Proops, and I'm on Who's Line, and can I come over and do a set at your club? 
So I went over in 92, November or October that year, and did a month in England of comedy clubs. And then a, a Scottish cat hooked me up named Parrot, Willie O'Hare, out of uh, Glasgow. And I did a bunch of jig- gigs in Scotland as well on that. And after that, it was like, you know, Jennifer went with me on the second or third time I went to do Who's Line. And I said to her, we were in a taxi, could you live here? And she went, yes. And so when I got the opportunity in 93 to go over and do... It was a TV show called Viva Cabaret or something. And then the Edinburgh Festival, we decided, fuck it, let's move there. So yeah. we moved like then. Are you still there? No, we're in Los Angeles, and we have been for ages. I thought you might have a dual residency. Oh, I wished going. I did. Yeah. I never got a passport. I'm not Irish, so I couldn't get a, <laughs> uh, uh, a passport into England. But um, no, I'm back in – I did England already twice this year. I was there in April uh, and before that. And then um, we're going back in August, and I'm doing Soho Theater and the Edinburgh Festival for the millionth time. So I've never dropped it. I've, I've kept that going. Uh, I, I play England all the time. Yeah. How, how do you feel about My other hometown. I, I see San Francisco day to day to day, so I'm anesthetized by the changes. Yeah. I grew up here too. Um, are you how, from San Francisco? Or are you from? I'm, I grew up on the peninsula too. Oh. I was in Burlingame. Burlingame. Yeah. So we had like neighboring paper routes right. a few years off. But um, what is it like coming back here every, I don't know, three months or so? Right. You, it's almost like seeing San Francisco change in stop motion animation. I right. Think. It's like a George Powell movie. Yeah. The fashions change as you walk by. Uh, it's a, the biggest change, of course, is uh, uh, the tech thing. And that uh, so many places that I love have been um, douche canoed beyond measure. Yeah. And people stand in line for ice cream in neighborhoods where once you ran from your to, – to your bus yeah. because you didn't want to be stabbed to death. Um, what's happened around um, Mission Park and – or Dolores Park because uh, uh, Zuckerberg moved there and all his little acolytes live there. Uh, I think it's irrevocably changed that neighborhood. Sure. Um, my wife lived at 20th and Shotwell uh, where I lived with her for years and uh, – the Peruvian guy downstairs would often get drunk and like set fire to the apartment building. And, you know, it was that kind of place. The rain poured through the top and couldn't get the landlord to do anything. Now those places are worth an ungodly fortune. Yeah, uh, yeah. There was a bar next door called El Trebol that like you didn't go in. Um, and I had my friend Kathy had given me a car and I had a Buick Electra 225 that was giant, like 21 feet long, 9 feet wide. And I parked it on the sidewalk. Because in the mission in those days, that's what you did. You just and I had a big crucifix hanging from my window, so no one <laughs> fucked with me. <laughs> and um, and uh, yeah, it, the big, that's the biggest change. The idea that there's no more poverty here and no more homeless—that's ludicrous. There's yeah, just no, as much as there always was. Yeah. Um, it's not so much that there's not poor people. I think that there's just not as much middle class people. I don't know where. The servers live, you know, like the people who work at the punchline day to day. Can they even live here anymore or do they have to live in the East Bay? I assume it's like Bart from Pittsburgh Bay Point. Right? But, right? Yeah. I mean, is there an affordable apartment you can have in San Francisco? I saw my friend Larry Brown last night in Marin, Bubbles, and he has I a – I love that guy. I'm sorry. No, please. He's I fantastic. see him. I run into him. Every time I go to 142 – Yeah. Or is it 142 Throckmorton? Throckmorton. Yeah. I see him there um, – He's not necessarily working there. No. He's just in the hallway. Doesn't shake my hand. He's no, he a little bit doesn't like the gerb fist bump. Yeah, yeah. I know that now. And he remembers everything I wrote. He's yep. got this steel trap memory that he can remember chronicle uh, front pages from 1972. You know, mm-hmm. And just a delightful individual who continues to be here frozen in amber. Yeah, Larry, he is. Larry Bubbles Brown. He'll turn the light out uh, when, when we all leave. Yeah. I met him in the early 80s. We were talking about it last night. Uh, we fist bumped last night. <laughs> he turned to Jennifer and went, Greg was born October 3rd, 1959, which is <laughs> yeah. something I told him in 1983. Yeah. yeah. 
he has a photographic Rain Man memory. And the reason why I told him is him and me were going to a gig together, and he was driving. And um, he said, tell me your date of birth. And I said, October 3rd, 59. And he went, it's a Tuesday. Yeah. So he can do that. Um, he was a comic. Has anybody that, tried, has any comic tried to take him to Vegas? Right. To, 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 to like a blackjack table? Yeah. No? Is no, that not that been I know. Done? He, he travels with Dana Carvey, I know. Yeah, so. he does. He doesn't drink or smoke or do anything bad. He's very healthy. He's yeah. a, a vegetarian as far as I know. I don't remember ever drinking with him. He's just a very funny guy. I've known him for a hundred years. I could do his act backward and forward if I had to from the 80s. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, um, I detoured you. I'm sorry. No, but, it's okay. Yeah. The one time my mother came to see me do stand-up comedy, uh, I was headlining at Cobb's maybe the 90s, I'm guessing, or late 90s. Uh, my mother lived quite a long time. Uh, she only passed away a couple of years ago, and she was like 94. And my sister Marion brought her out. Hi. That's our uh, librarian, by the way, Bill Kirkin. Who is a Burlingame High grad as well, like me? Hi, how so, are you? Yeah. Well, thank you very much. He, he says he's always enjoyed your work. Yes, I, can I, imagine. I gotta get a third mic here for Bill when he comes in because I think we need to ask him what he's looking for. Right. Uh, anyway, I'm sorry, your mother. So, well, my mother came to see me, and uh, for, I no reason that I can figure. Uh, Tom Sawyer had Bill Bubbles um, feature for me, so yeah. my mother, the one time she saw me do stand up, saw Larry do his act, which included lines like "Don't you hate it when you panic and kill a hooker?" and <laughs> Uh, I went to the doctor. He says, there's good news and bad news. What's the good news? Uh, your, your sperm counts high. What's the bad news? It's this big and it wants out now. And uh, <laughs> I couldn't get laid in a women's prison with a fistful of pardons. I went to the pharmacist and I said, I'd like to buy a condom. He said, why not buy a lottery ticket? Slightly better odds. And uh, so – and she was like, Larry was really funny. My yeah. mother loved Larry Brown. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I can't remember your question now. I can't either. That's um, all right. I've got I've got a little uh, post-it here. By the way, Bill, yeah. uh, if you if you can come by the mic, are you okay with that? Sure. Can you just tell us what you're what looking, are you looking for? for? This Bill. is going to be a part of the big event podcast. When Bill walks in the Chronicle Archive, I have to ask him what is he's looking for. What do you got there? Come come and make love to the mic here oh. if you can talk into it. Well, I found a 19- real close, real close. Bill. I found a 1948 photo of um, some aerial shots of uh, Lake Tahoe and Yosemite. Mm. And I've got a shot here of four obviously obvious United Airlines personnel and a guy who I think might be the photographer. Wow. Awesome. And, and what year are these photos? These are this airline is, photos. I'm describing it for the podcast. Well, airline 19, photos. Yeah, Looks like a stewardess there. 48, is that? 48 yeah. yeah. This yeah. is the kind of magic that goes on in the Chronicle Archive every day, Greg. Fantastic. Bill Van Niekirken, our librarian, Chronicle librarian. I'll Thank give you, you a little hand there. Thank you, yeah, Bill. Nice, uh, Nice to say in person how much I've enjoyed watching you. How very kind of you. Yes. Thank you, Bill. This is uh, the spontaneity of this. Oh, yeah. There's, there's f- like seven people in the newsroom with a key to this room. Uh, me, I was going to say we met three of them. Yeah, <laughs> Maricar and then um, like four or five building service wow. custodial workers. Right. So if they walk in, we're going to chat with them too. Okay. Um, yeah, I, I didn't have I, – I forgot what subject we were on, but it, it was wonderful. I do have um, – I have a piece of paper here of stuff I have to f- just remember to ask you. Circle Star Theater, could you describe for people who are too young or didn't grow up on the peninsula, what was the Circle Star Theater? Well, the Circle Star Theater was the biggest theater between San Jose and San Francisco. I mean, it had national, international stars. Frank Sinatra played there. Uh, Frank Zappa played there. I saw Tower of Power there. I saw Count Basie and uh, Ella Fitzgerald there. I saw Pearl Bailey there. I saw... 
really old time acts. When I was really little, I saw Jimmy Durante there with my father. Um, I saw um, Bill Cosby there with yeah. the um, uh, the Silvers. I saw Tavares there. Uh, Shauna Na. This was in the seventies with the circular stage. Yeah, it was we a revolving explain. stage. So it was it was in a car, a big parking lot, and it was a one story building, and it was round. And when you went inside. There was a totally crap snack bar that served hot dogs and cokes. I'm not kidding. There was yeah. no. It was a classy place. Like I said, Frank Sinatra. You'd be seeing her. Ella Fitzgerald. Yeah, Frank hot Sinatra dogs and was cokes. there. I saw Little Richard there. Little Richard. I saw Fishbone there. Fishbone. So yeah. it was going till the 80s. Yeah. I don't remember 91, when it 91, I think. It 91. Really? Yeah, yeah. I took Jennifer there in 90 or 91 to see a matinee of Ella Fitzgerald. Wow. And it was right before she passed. And um, I had a gig that night. It was a Saturday, maybe or Sunday. And uh, so I took her to an afternoon show. We drove down, and she came out. Uh, when I'd seen her in 1974, she was quite big, as always, and she was playing with the Count Basie Orchestra. When I saw her in 90 or 91, she was quite frail. So a guy led her up to the stage. She was also blind as a bat, right? They led her up to the stage and put her on a chair, and she did the opening number. And the stage started to revolve. And the stage had this terrible new, like, hydraulic device that turned it so when it would start to revolve it would go clunk whirr, right there it was sounded that. like bart the bart tracks now yes like when you're going through the trans bay tube <laughs> yes. and yeah yeah there was this which was whirr. fine if you were like fishbone yeah because no one's going to hear it they think right, it's part loud. of the act but it's not fine if you're frank sinatra i know i yeah. never understood how those acts ever dealt with it and so, if you remember there was a star aisle where the dressing room was and they yeah. literally because there was no way to get to the stage you the Big famous star would have to walk down the length of the theater it was and like then WWE walk. wrestling. I yes. remember that and walk up a staircase to the stage. Yeah, and Ella. So Ella is a hundred. They bring well, she's seventy five. <laughs> they brought her up. She did her first number. The stage started to revolve. And then she finishes the number, and it was like, don't mean a thing. And then ain't got the swing. Then she goes, hmm, I'm not happy. And everybody what? And she goes, and something's not right. And we're no one in the audience is under 80, right? Like we're the youngest people there. <laughs> yeah. And there's old women in front of us in furs on a Sunday afternoon. And they start screaming like a Judas Priest concert. The place goes bananas, like ballistic, right? Yeah. All of a sudden, the women in front of us, whose husbands have been dead for 25 years, are standing up with their fists in the air, screaming at the security. Can't you see she's not comfortable? <laughs> so the security guard, who weighed 300 pounds, runs up on stage and picked Ella Fitzgerald up and put her on the chair. Physically, yeah, because her, up. her ass was hanging halfway off, and that's yeah. what she. But she couldn't move it herself, so he picked her up and put her on the chair like a child, and then he ran off the stage, and she went, "Hmm, that's better." Oh my goodness, that's awesome. Yeah, but I mean, the place broke into tumult. Jennifer and I were hysterical at this point. I'm looking at her, and I'm like, "There's going to be a riot here," <laughs> because there was not, you know, physical comfort, physical comfort. Can't yeah. you see she's not happy? Uh, so I, I saw uh, Tower Power with Chi Chin Chong opening there with my cousin Donnie, and. Uh, we brought weed, of course. You could smoke weed in there in those days. Inside. No one even cared. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, Tower Power had, what, like 10 people in it? Lenny Pickett was in the band then still. Sure, And sure. they had to come down the bloody aisle and mount the stage. Chi Chin Chong put two folding chairs like we're sitting on on the stage. That was their opener. And uh, Cheech came on and pretended to polish the car with his do-rag. Yeah. And then he pre- pretended to drive a lowrider. And then Chong walked on the stage and pretended to hitchhike, and he picked him up. And that was their opening <laughs> bit. So he sat in the other folding chair yeah. and went, and Cheech goes, yeah, man, you got any weed? And he goes, yeah, man, and then went into a litany of 70s weed, yeah. which was 
tie stick, lumbo red, uh, mesh macan, Oaxacan. Yeah. This is what we smoked then. There was none of this blueberry crunch kush, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know, snoodles, unicorn, indica hybrid shit. Yeah. And these were the, this was the big wheat. Ash oil. Uh, I got Lebanese. And that was like, you know, we were like, they're geniuses. How did they think of this? You know, it was the 70s, so. I, I just got um, I just got my weed card, but for 25 years I didn't smoke. Uh-huh. So we're talking from like 91 in college until three months ago. Really? I smoked probably three times, and I kind of Bill Bill Clinton did. I yeah, sort yeah. of inhaled, right. but didn't. Um, I am shocked at how much it's changed. Oh, it's I so was strong. like I was picking sticks and stems yeah, yeah, out of it. Yeah. Back then, and then now I go in, and you need like a doctorate to buy weed. Uh huh. Yeah. And Sativa, indica, right? Disease, a, and they'll say to you, "Which one do you prefer? Which strain?" And you're like, "I just want to get high, really. I'm not that interested in like, you know. Well, this one's a body high, yeah. And then this one's a head high, yeah. Are you planning on working? <laughs> you know, they, they, you know, they interview you. Also, weed is really strong now. I was in a medicine, by the way. They, they like say the word medicine, yeah. And you it, don't call it, it weed; you call it um, flowers. Yeah. It's changed. Yeah, you can't you can't go just like I want a bunch of weed. It's like, do you want flowers? Meaning, like the kind you would roll into a joint, uh, and then the pre rolls, which I quite enjoy. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm like the guy who um, who went to prison for 25 years <laughs> and then like and then like starts driving, right. you know, and it, it's all changed. It was never hard to come by in San Francisco or San Carlos. I've never really been anywhere. It was hard to come by. That's the lie of it, that they, people think it's this, this giant destructive force on mankind or whatever. But and now that it's available everywhere, I don't even approve of everyone smoking it. <laughs> I'm sort of like old-fashioned. I didn't get into this to smoke weed to have the government know my name and put me on a list. I resisted getting a card for the longest time. I said to a comedian friend of mine, don't you end up on a list if you get a card? And he went, yeah, a list of people who can fucking smoke weed, <laughs> which is stoner logic. I I wanted to um, – you mentioned your podcast, and a lot of comics seem like they go into social media podcasts, any new technology with a gun to their head, and you seem to love it. I mean it oh, seems yeah. like you found the promised land. I've never been happier. I, I, uh, I don't have to deal with uh, regular show business as much. Um, I can take it to different places. Uh, we did the Throckmorton in Mill Valley last night. That was off the back of – you know, the, you know, just going up to do the um, – uh, the outdoor concert there. And then, um, you know, I'm, every time I play the punchline, I make sure I do a podcast there as well. Uh, I won't go to a comedy club if they won't let me do the podcast one of the nights. And some of them are still resistant, if you can believe that, Peter, at this late date. Uh, with all that's happened with podcasting, with all the famous stars that have come out of podcasting now, with all the people who have giant careers as podcasters, Clubs are still like, well, we really want you to do stand-up because, you know, more people come and stuff. Really? Yes. And I, 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 I'm I, playing a club that is a well-known hip club, and I had to basically twist arms to get them to let me do it. I had to add a night. And then they finally said, okay, you can do it. Uh, and, like, I added a Sunday. And I'm guessing that I will fill the place on that Sunday. What they don't realize is podcast people are devoted, so they come for a reason. They know why they're there. Yeah. Stand-up club. Uh, if I'm in the middle of the country or somewhere else, you know, uh, not in San Francisco, uh, maybe 50% of the people know why they came. And the other half just came to see like a show. Groupon, you know, right. arms folded. Right. Or, or whatever, you know. Yeah. I mean, I had a woman last year. I did this bit about Godzilla. 
And this woman came up to me afterward at the bar and went, I'm 31, what's Godzilla? <laughs> and I was like, well, you're aware of the, the movie Godzilla. You're aware of the character. And she's like, yeah. And I'm like, well, see, this joke was about this, this, the tsunami destroying Japan and then Godzilla attacks. And yeah. She's like, I don't get it. And I'm like, I can't help you. Her husband, yeah. by the way, sitting with his head in his hands. Yeah. He was embarrassed beyond measure. That's super embarrassing. I mean, I wouldn't think when I was 31 complaining to, you know, Mort Saul if he was talking right? about the Kennedy assassination. Right? Who's Kennedy? You know, who's Kennedy? But I love Tell the, me now, yeah. Mort Saul. Millennials have that uh, engaging quality. Well, 30-somethings, I find. Uh, yeah. Young people aren't uh, – uh, 30-something guys tend to be a little helpless in my opinion. But uh, I was too, so what the heck. Um, yeah, so when I do the podcast – I go to New York, I play the Bell House. Uh, I go to Chicago, I got a new place there called Lincoln Hall. In Seattle, I play the Crocodile. I don't even play comedy clubs, so I don't have to. I can, br- I can bring in 200 people, 200, 300 people on my own yeah. doing the podcast. So why would I ever want to go back and play fucking comedy rooms that I hate, where the MC screams and goes, let me hear you and all that. And like, yeah. I'm not going to be doing a rock concert. I'm going to be talking up here. This is spoken word. Yeah. So then they go, come on louder. And you're like, no, I don't actually want the crowd whipped into a loud tizzy. And if you've ever seen my podcast... Uh, I talk to everybody before the show. I go into the audience and talk to everybody, which I would never do at a stand-up show because it ruins the magic. Yeah. Stand-up show, there has to be a little don't look at the man behind the curtain thing. They need to be surprised by everything you say because you're telling jokes. Podcast, because we're starting it in the middle and I'm already with the presumption that we know what we're talking about here, uh, I go in and I talk to everybody. In England, it's hilarious because they're not always ready for a performer to talk to them before the show and they're a little put off. And also, English people aren't the warmest people in the world. They don't really want the performer to come up and say hi. Yeah. So sometimes I'll come up to them and go hi, and they're like, oh, we didn't know you came out. And I go, it's part of the punishment. You have to meet me. <laughs> uh, but then, of course, afterward, they're all delighted. Yeah. Like, oh, my God, he came out and he met everybody. And they give everybody stickers and stuff, and I forgot to bring one for you today. I feel like you need That's idiot. okay. I'm going to invite you back. Okay. And then I didn't get you comedy day at the park. I didn't. I have all those files. Oh, and my then God. I did 100 of those. So I haven't done it in a long time. Photos, and then I have the early ones and then um i'll get the satchel page file out too nice i do have a couple more things yes, um, we've talked about this once before but um, Circle, I, oh, I may no, do, do a uh, oral history on 1977 kiss at the cow palace oh yes that's right we did do an article about that and i i i want to do an oral history and i want your contribution to that so what give me your oral history memories of 1977 kiss at the cow palace my friend jefferson and i drove up from san carlos i don't remember what car it was uh we were drinking vodka and lemonade we would you would buy a jug like i said no one brought water bottles it was a grocery store Can jug just of, say it was an el camino that you drove up i know i wish it was an el camino yeah. none of us had an el camino yeah i think jeff might have had like a an old volvo or a, like a volkswagen wagon you know what i mean yeah um by then, I had, I think, a Chevy Vega by That's 77. Cool. A hatchback. Yeah. Um, but I might have still had a, a Chevy 2, which preceded the Vega, which was really awful. They, and yeah. both of them ate oil. So we drove up. We parked in the uh, car park. Um, 10,000 station wagons full of children. Mm-hmm. That's my main memory of the parking lot at the Cow Palace. And the Cow Palace, is it still there? Cow Palace? Oh, yeah, yeah. Do they still have gigs there, like rodeos sure. and stuff? They, do, they don't do concerts there that often, yeah. although occasionally they will. They had a minor league hockey team there a few really? years ago, and um, it's it's has not changed. Everything else has changed here. I love the Cow Palace. I mean, I'm like oh, – I God, write, I'd like to go. I don't even know if I can find my, it now. My I, editors are sick of me writing articles yeah, about, about it because I write these celebratory articles about – 
if you're from the Bay Area, you have a Cow Palace story. Yes. You yes. got drunk for the first time yes. there. You had your first kiss there. You took your first drugs there. Yeah. You can't say that about anywhere. You can't say that about Moscone Center no, or, no. or Oakland Coliseum right, or, or AT&T Hall, Park. Yeah, yeah, no. But Cow Palace, there's a cred to it. Absolutely. I cut you off. Um, no, no, no. It's, yeah. uh, but you're absolutely right. I mean, my friend Jeff Belton, uh, who's uh, passed away, his sister took him to see the Beatles there in 65. And I think he might have seen Elvis Presley there when he was still touring in the early 70s when he was a kid. His sister took yeah. him to those gigs there. Um, I started going in high school. And I saw a lot of groups there. Saw Fog Hat and Sammy Hagar. I saw the Grand National Rodeo there. They drove chariots at one point. That was awesome. Um, so that show was Kiss. Uh, it was uh, no SUVs in the 70s. It was yeah. station wagons. So the back of the station wagon would fold down. Yeah. Sometimes they folded out, but sometimes they folded down. And 20 kids would pile out of every station wagon, all of whom were wearing Kiss T-shirts that were either Rock and Roll Over or Detroit Rock City or the one where the four of them are standing with their arms in the air or the one where they're all in suits and ties, that one where they're in, like, business drag. And running, screaming, yelling, we were 16, so we were, like, the oldest people there. Literally, the crowd was children. Yeah, and uh, and a few, t- you know, a couple thousand teenagers. What did the Cowboys hold? Like ten thousand, fifteen? Not even. Really? It was. Yeah. It held several I mean, thousand for a concert. It might have held ten or twelve. Yeah. So there was a. They had set up a big thing on the stage with. They had grain elevators, you know, that like ran them up and down and yeah. whatnot, and explosions and fireworks and all this. And Gene Simmons spit blood. Ace Freely disappeared at one point and re- reappeared somewhere else on the stage in a puff of smoke. Um, they. I was quite drunk. At one point, I passed out and. Um, uh, was laying on a bench and a security guy came up to me and went, are you all right? And I growled at him. I don't even remember wanting his help. I went like, ah, you know, and then he <laughs> ran away. And um, we were smoking pot and um, a little kid came over and we could we watched this whole thing brew. There was a group, a gaggle of children. They were probably 10, 11. And they were conferring head to head. And um, we they were casting glances at us. And I said, watch what happens here, Jeff. One of them is going to come over. So they elected at one. Uh, they deputized one other group, and he came over to us and he went, "Could we buy a joint?" And I said, "Yeah, man. Do you got a dollar?" I, I've never sold weed in my life, right? <laughs> so I made this ten-year-old give me a dollar, and I gave him a joint, and they went back and they all got high, and they were all ten or whatever, and they oh were laughing God. and screaming, yeah. and they loved it. And um, so at the end of the show, uh, now I've passed out. I've sold a kid a joint. Kiss is going on and on and on. Uh, they were up and down on the elevators. Um, they screamed everything, as you recall. Yeah. They, 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 uh, they were called strong! Right? Like they didn't, <laughs> they didn't actually speak to the crowd at any point. They simply screamed, like, how many people here like rock and roll? Right? And then how many people like the taste of alcohol? Questions like that. Yeah. I believe the question went like this. How many people here like the taste of alcohol? And everybody cheer. And they go, this one's called cold gin. And it's like, what child likes to drink gin? I mean, just, I'm just asking. I have curiosity. So they'd sing their crappy cold gin song. Then there was a song about a prostitute, I think, called Strutter. And uh, difficult to ascertain, really, that what the meaning of their lyrics was. As my friend Matt Weinhold pointed out, Paul Stanley wrote, I'm a dancer, I'm a romancer, I'm a Capricorn, and she's a cancer. <laughs> Why you would say she's a cancer as a line and not get that that's not very poetic and that it means two things. End of the show. So Kiss was really loud and famously loud. Like I think they were proud that they were one of the loudest shows in concert. I don't know why they're not deaf. They must have worn earplugs. Uh, Now I can see the end of the show. 
And Paul Stanley goes, uh, we'd like to dedicate this song to the king of rock and roll, Elvis Presley. And I turned to my friend Jeff, and I'm like, why? Why would they play an Elvis song? This has nothing to do with Elvis. And they played Jailhouse Rock, like Kiss, like boom, boom, ba dum ba dum boom, 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 you know. What the You know. We went home that night, uh, drove back drunk, of course. Yeah. As you did in those days down the Bay Shore. Uh, next morning, I got up, Chronicle. Elvis dead at four. I remember the headline exactly. Elvis dead at forty-four. So the thirty-one-year-olds who ask you about Godzilla won't under, they can't, won't be able to fathom this. How did you not know from your phone right. that no Elvis phone, Presley nothing. had died? And no one there had heard it on the radio because you know we were in a cow palace and it was all children. Yeah, uh, there was no way to know until. I don't know if we didn't listen to the radio on the way home. No, I think your, par- might have your parents it. were driving and probably listening to like K101. Right, yeah. right. Something so smooth. Smooth. Smooth yeah. and, and creamy. A coit. Yeah, uh, coit. <laughs> I'm just so happy to know the cow palace was still there. It's the, still there. The worst food. I like Hot giving you good Cokes. news. Huh? I, I like good news about San Francisco because most, yeah. most conversations about is it still there in San no, Francisco end right. really – Poorly. Right. There's that. Uh, well, I was walking by the uh, Marquard cigar store on the way yeah. here, and it's closed. And, uh, you know, Doige's, which I used to love on Union Street for breakfast, the most pretentious breakfast place in the world. The guy at the door would go, Do you have a reservation? It's like, I'm here for breakfast, you know? And then they put your name on a list, you know? They had delicious breakfast, though. Some applewood bacon or some nonsense. I know everything always ends with it's closed, it's gone. It's been gone for 14 years. Yeah. Well, my wife's favorite store in Union Square, Metier. And they finally they moved a couple times, and then they just closed, and you know whatever. Well, I don't want to. I don't want to end depressing. No, so that's I not. Wanna, I want to show you. This is a, maybe this is depressing. I don't know. Maybe actually one of these. I found your first two. So we're in the Chronicle archive. Yeah. I used our wizard digital software. I found your first two mentions of Greg Proops, Gregory Proops, uh-huh. in the San Francisco Chronicle. Yes, please. And. Um, I'd like you to just – I'm going to kind of ambush you with them. Here's the first one. Um, tell me if you remember this. Explain what you're looking at there. It's right. Yeah, that's the one. Six and a half. I was right. I was six. Um, the junior art champion uh, – I can't remember what the first prize was. And this is on the comics. Oh, page. here it is. I'll read it. Yeah. Mail a picture – on the comic page and underneath Dr. Frank Miller's Wonderful World of Animals. And by the way, the comics um, – to give you an idea of how not hip it was in 1966, Dick Tracy, Batman, Gordo – <laughs> Gus Ariola wrote Gordo for a hundred years. Yeah. Apartment 3G, which I never read because it moved like glacial. That was the soap opera one. Yeah. Gasoline Alley was a holdover from the 40s. I mean, I don't think Gasoline Alley was funny then. Yeah. Steve Roper, which I loved. Mike Nomad. We always yeah. read that one because they they were terse and they they, call, they called each other great 40s nicknames. There's Mike Nomad. Uh, Whoever thought up the word lady must have had Mrs. Winslow in mind, Steve. She was so nice to me, it hurts. <laughs> Give me one reason why anybody would love you, Minka, and I'll do a tap dance on top of the Empire State Building. That I loved their dialogue. Odd Bodkins uh, was real. Dan O'Neill was uh, preceded uh, Gary Larson and all them. His was yeah. abstruse, and then Fred Bassett, which was this very British cartoon that had no humor in it whatsoever about a guy who smoked a pipe and owned a Bassett hound. Um, so the junior art, and this is why I entered it. Uh, we were living in um, Palo Alto at the time. Mail a picture shape like this one, only bigger. I love that because as if children are going to draw one, that's it's about, oh, what would you call that, two by three? Two by three. Uh, on any subject, the name, age, address, picture title to Junior Art Championship, SF Chronicle, San Francisco 19. Not even a zip code, baby. All entries become property of the Chronicle. Each day's champion will give in $2, and that's what I was after. 
at the age of six and a half, two dollars. That's a lot of money, though. Dude, you could go to the movies for fifty cents. A candy bar was ten cents. Uh, a cu- gum was still a nickel. A pack. You could buy a find a sixteen year old and buy two joints. Yeah, buy two joints in yeah. in nineteen sixty six. And uh, um, there was a Jack in the Box that opened around the corner from my house in Palo Alto, and it was twenty five cents for a chocolate shake, twenty six cents with tax. That I remember because I came in with a quarter once and I ordered a shake, and the guy goes, "It's twenty six cents," and I and the dude behind me did me a solid one here, kid, and gave me a penny. Yeah. Honorable mentions to receive lifetime storybook keys to the SF Zoo. I was telling my wife this story yesterday. That's how tedious I am. I don't think I still have the key, but I did get the key in the mail. Yeah. Winning entry should allow two weeks. So I didn't win. Dinosaurs by Susan Chan and El Cerrito, age seven. And it's not a very good picture, it has to be said, but, you know, who's judging? I was in between um, James McCord, nine of Berkeley, and Robin Rosenblatt, five of San Bruno. Gregory Proop, six and a half, Palo Alto. I can't remember what I drew. I think it was birds or... I want to say it was a wildlife scene. That was very popular with kids in those days. Could we just make this part of your origin story that, that this honorable mention motivated you to become an artist? Well, you, and... It was funny. You asked me what my first mention was, and I actually – I think I guessed. I guessed yeah. that this was the one because I remember my parents were pretty excited. I was bummed because I wanted the $2, but I was excited about the Zuki. And the, I don't know if they do the Zookies anymore. They still do them at Children's Fairyland. At Land. Children's Fairyland. Yeah. They but they, still have the it was Zuki. in front of every enclosure, and in those days – the San Francisco Zoo was well. It was first of all, it's called Flyshiker Zoo then. Yeah. And like, you go to the lion enclosure and you'd stick the zoo in and turn it, and uh, it would go like the African lion lives on the veldt, and then it would give a spiel. And then there was a little song that it would play sometimes. All the animals in the zoo were jumping up and down for you. Something, something. So buy your zuki right away. A world of new, a world of pure excitement. You'll find here at the zoo. I always love the zoo because it's a WPA project. There's yeah. so many enclosures that are from the 30s. Uh, obviously, they redid it then. Except um, they're still there. The, yeah, the that's lions the br- and, and bears are in the same WPA closure, oh and it God. makes me furious. I know. But you can watch them feed them in those weird cages after and stuff, which is really weird. Do you know when the polar bears were first brought in there yeah. in 1937 or whatever it was? Um, one of the polar bears killed the other polar bear, and in front of all the kids oh, and yeah. the mayor and everybody, they had to shoot one of the polar oh, bears, God. and it was in the front of the Chronicle. Fantastic. Forgotten history. Uh, more forgotten history. Here's your second Gregory Proust. Oh, yeah. This is a – and I think it's a Mike Nomad joke in there, isn't it? Yeah. Something about saving Mike Nomad. Me and Forrest wrote uh, – So what are we looking at? It's a Herb okay. King column. Uh, so Herb King column from 1982. Yeah. And uh, the, the subheading under his um, – uh, uh, Herb King column on the left-hand side. And by the way, this was the, the front of Section 2 for 522 years. Um, it says, the puerile paragrapher. And I made the first paragraph. Mm-hmm. My friend Forrest and I wrote this together and mailed it to him. And he excised Forrest's name out of it. Because, you know, we signed it together. We're the comedy team of Proofs and Brinkman. Yeah. Look, and, I only for the 31-year-old, I mean, Herb Cain mention was a huge deal back oh, then. So everybody in the Bay Area He must have it. been pissed. I mean, Oh, no, Force was angry uh, yeah. at me, but like mostly at Herb Cain's editor, whoever that was at yeah. the time. So I'm sorry, back to the – Well, yeah, the, so this was 82, and we were just starting to do – we were doing stand-up at like Cobbs, which was in, uh, um, on, in the marina on Chestnut Street, and uh, the, the other cafe on Carlin Cole. And we used to do a Mike Nomad routine. And I would do the girl in Mike Nomad like this. These were my breasts, right? Yeah. Because all of them were drawn with cantilever uh, 1940s breasts that looked like um, Jane Russell. 
Look, I only work here. That's what I tell old-time subscribers. Subscribers who ask me to do something about some outrage. The latest being the demotion of Steve Roper and Mike Nomad from the comic page to the classified ad section, which is usually one step from oblivion. Well, I was just telling you Mike Nomad was there in 1966. Um... The loss of apartment 3G with its elegantly drawn women and plots that moved at glacier speed hit me harder. I got no juice, see? The significant thing about The Twilight of Mike Nomad after 26 years, it's the last cron strip with the storyline plots and episodes. All the others you know are, notice are one shot or self-contained. To get heavy-handed, it's part of our frantic time, 1982. Everything should move fast and be over within a hurry, especially this paragraph. Things I like about Mike Nomad, his GI lingo, his dumbness, his big bosom wasp-waisted chicks. It's also devoid of penguins, cats, dogs, children, fairies, or hairstyles after 53. We wrote that. Nice. Herb put it in like things he was sick of. But yeah. That was our line. Besides ads, Gregory proves Mike Nomad is scientifically formulated to taste good with English muffins, and you can pop that in your toaster, Joker. We wrote that too. Mike Nomad called everybody Joker. Oh. He'd go, hey, Joker. And, uh, yeah. So my girlfriend's father at the time had it blown up and put in a frame for me, this, this particular paragraph, yeah, yeah. which I have somewhere in my garage, I think. I was 22. Nice. 21. I hadn't turned 22 yet. Awesome. Thank you for finding that. Yeah. It's really cute. Oh, that, look, that down here they mention uh, Mike Pritchard. Yeah. Comedian Mike Pritchard. Still around. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, Pritch, I've known a thousand years. I saw him in grade school. My dad was a teacher at Burlingame High. Really? And he brought me to see him, and it was my first, like, comedic experience. And I went back home, got a little tape recorder that had, like, my dad's, like, Willie Nelson and Jerry Jeff Walker. And I would try and tape repeating Mike Pritchard's act. Wow. Um, on that tape. And they're still around somewhere. My dad was pissed, but. Wow. Um, That's so. amazing. Yeah, I'm sorry. Mike I Pritchard. cut you off. No, you didn't cut me I off made, at all. Pritch is a lovely guy. I've known him for 100 years. He was really funny. He'd get up at the Holy City Zoo, and uh, Jeremy Kramer would be on stage. And Jeremy Kramer was about five feet tall. Yeah. And from the doorway of the zoo, Pritchard, who was almost seven feet tall, would go, Hey, Jew boy, and yell at him. And then he'd go, Do I have to come down there and kick some fanny? Right, because he was <laughs> – and then Pritch would get on stage with him, and they'd riff together. Wow, this is a trip down memory lane, man. Yeah, this is my first time. And like I said, I'm almost sure that I'm in here from 82 in The Question Man uh, when I did not have a gig. And it was a decision each day whether to buy food or cigarettes. If I get The Question Man, um, will you come back? Yes. If I can find that Question Man. You don't have man. to get The Question Man. Okay, me but I'm going to get here. that Question Man. We'll get Comedy Day. I'd like to have you back. I know. We have a lot to talk about Comedy Day. What have we learned today? Uh, bring back Mike Nomad. Oh, Mike Nomad was the greatest. Cow Palace, Fist in the Air. Oh. The, the, the Cow Palace was uh, – I don't even know if, if the shows were good. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was just the excitement of going there because it was a million teenagers screaming. And like I said, well, I don't know if when you went there still uh, – I'm sure they don't now. Everybody was smoking and smoking dope inside and everybody put their lighters in the – you know, this is the beginning of Bic lighters. Yeah. So that was what happened at shows there. Uh, uh, we went to see Chicago there, me and my friend Jay. And neither of us were really Chicago fans, and we were really bumming out the whole time because we wanted to really see Peter Frampton. That's who was shit hot that year. That yeah. was the year Frampton Comes Alive. And I did, I did see him, but he was with, like, the Eagles or something uh, at the Day on the Green. We haven't talked about Days on the Green either. The Oakland Ballpark's still there. I think we have, like, the next four podcasts lined up. Yeah. So um, got to have you back. Um, yes, please. If people are listening to this in July – 
21st or 24th at Punchline? That's right. I'll be there the 20th through the 23rd, I think, or something like that. Okay. The Thursday is the, is the podcast. Uh, we'll have a Planned Parenthood table there, I hope. We're sorting that out, and hopefully we'll have books there, too, as well. And you're back in uh, December. Thank you very much for coming. Um, I've enjoyed. Thanks, Peter. I've enjoyed your work. I brought my wife to your shows. Um, I think you're really smart, and uh, I just like that. You know, you listen to the podcast, and it it still feels like you like what you're doing. Well, thank so. you. I'm chuffed to come down here. It's a real pleasure to see all this and uh, and finally meet you after yeah. having a email intercourse with you over the, all these years. Excellent, excellent. Thank you very much. Thanks, Peter. Yeah. They're all sideways And I think Aaron's broken home Best believer Our own accord I'm an arm for breathing I'm an arm walking And we've been singing a song As we gather our way home Thank you to Greg Proops for joining us I'm going to post bonus material On the Big Event Facebook page Including fantastic 1980s photos of Greg and that Herb Kane mentioned he was talking about at the end there. Um, that's Leah Garchik on our opening signature and our theme music is The Tide Will Rise by the Sunset Shipwrecks. Check out their album Community at Lugosi Records. Thanks for all the positive notes since we launched last week. I'm having a blast and I'm so stoked that people are listening. We will definitely make more. Thank you for listening to The Big Event.